0: Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro natural physique athlete. Today, joined again by Menno Henselmans, who you've seen featured on this channel quite a bit. And as you can tell, I think he's one of the best resources out there for evidence-based fitness. And today we're going to be delving into supplements. Supplements are a tricky subject and definitely something of a lot of controversy and that gets a lot of attention in the bodybuilding sphere. So today we're going to be busting a lot of myths. We're going to talk about some of the most valuable supplements to bodybuilders, the mechanisms of benefit, and how much and how to take them. So thanks again for being on the show, Mano.
1: All right, let's get into it. Must feel good, right? The, the pro title.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's a, It was the the life goal. So pretty excited about that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're going to be talking about a pretty short list today. And I think that's going to be a big theme of the conversation where you know making people realize that supplements are really a very small slice of the pie and i think this is one of the big things that people get wrong in the fitness industry and especially if you went when you start delving into the actual bodybuilding industry itself you realize that a lot of the money is made off of supplements and often when you look at what influencers are doing online or you 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 look closely at internet articles you realize that A lot of it is just designed to sell supplements. Like people are posting these articles where they're just like the top three pillars of fitness, training, nutrition, and supplements. And like, they make it seem like supplements are a big deal and a really big part of their journey. And there's a lot of false advertising and information that goes out there, which hopefully we will lay some of that to rest today. So I think starting off, yeah, we're just going to be going through some of these supplements that are going to be useful to you and things to actually consider about them so i think startup one of the biggest ones we should talk about is creatine because uh, this is one of the best studied sports supplements for uh, bodybuilders out there so yeah if you could start us off Menno.
1: yeah creatine is immensely well studied it's uh, crazy how much research there is on creatine and we mostly haven't come any further in terms of practical advice than where we were like 20 years ago, Hmm. even almost 30. Uh, We know a lot more about what it does, but it's still the good old three to five grams uh, for most people, for some muscular men, five, for most people, three. I think uh, 0.03 gram per kilogram is a good general guideline. For most people, it's about three grams. And uh, you take that every day with um, first meal of the day or a post-workout meal. There is actually interesting research that shows post-workout works better than pre-workout, especially probably for people with high training frequency, because the absorption might be better, or there might be a greater potential elevation in um, creatine stores, like the body will allow greater creatine storage, Hmm. because that's how creatine functions, right? You consume more of it, and then the body has more creatine phosphate, and creatine phosphate can be broken down in the muscle because the... The bond between creatine and phosphate is, is very high in energy. So it's high energy phosphate bond. And by breaking that down, there is very rapid energy provision. So it's the ATP CP system, the ATP creatine phosphate system, which is responsible for sort of our, um, or you call that in an engine, the, um, the nitro boost, okay, where yeah. you sort of kickstart the engine. So almost all activities start with the creatine phosphate system. ATP itself is theoretically the original start, but it's like a second. And then, um, after that, you get more of the effects of burning carbohydrates and fats, but the first 10, 15 seconds or so are actually mostly the creatine phosphate system. So if you have more creatine in your system, there's uh, more of a reserve to replenish those creatine phosphate stores, and you can supply energy for longer to your muscles. So your muscles can do more work and your performance is better. And over time you gain some more muscle and some more strength. And it's Creatine is pretty much as good as it gets. It's one of the few supplements that actually works in, well, in about two-thirds of individuals. There is a continuum of creatine response, which seems to depend mostly on how much creatine you already store naturally in your muscles. If they're already full, then you can't do much. And so interestingly, there is research showing that people that benefit more from creatine supplementation are the people that have more fast-twitch muscle fibers, because they have greater potential for more creatine uptake in their muscles like fast switch muscle fibers uh, have higher potential creatine stores so they are sort of lucky on both regards assuming they don't want to uh, be endurance trainees at least and yeah there are some people like me who are almost as true non-responders and the best way probably that you can identify if you're a responder other than actually tracking your work capacity which is in seeing like it does your performance improve is your weight so funny enough in my experience the people that complain the most about creatine are the people that actually get the most benefits from it Hmm. because people that uh, especially women they often don't like to see that their weight goes up one or two kilos when they start supplementing it especially during a loading phase but it's all intramuscular water so it's actual muscle mass for all intents and purposes it also makes you stronger and it, it makes you look better So it's good, it means you're responding, your body's soaking up the creatine. So that is actually a very good sign if if your weight spikes during a loading phase, then, which is by the way, you don't have to do a loading phase, but I do recommend it for, because A, you get the benefits faster and B, there is some research showing you might still get um, greater effects, although it's it's, it's marginal. Uh, And the research is much more um, consistent for creatine loading. So creatine loading is much more well-studied. But in any case, if you do the loading phase and you notice that your weight goes up, like I said, it's it's a good sign. It's 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 a luxury problem essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's it's interesting how people yeah get the water weight thing wrong and people shy away from water weight or they they jump onto the water weight thing with something like mm-hmm. keto. In terms of creatine cycling, do you recommend people take time off it? No, you can take it indefinitely. It has potent health benefits,
1: actually. So mm-hmm. if anything, for the prevention of concussions and the cognitive performance, that alone could be reasons to take it.
0: hmm Yeah. No, I think that's that's uh yeah, it's creatine is probably one of the best supplements that will actually, you know, be useful for people out there. Moving on, I think the next one I wanted to bring up was caffeine. So I think caffeine is. interesting because it's so you know ubiquitous and uh and it's cool to see that there could actually be some applications
1: yeah creatine or caffeine also there's the interaction between the two there are a lot of still somewhat unresolved and very controversial parts about caffeine supplementation i think many people believe that the state of research on caffeine is like a it works and you use it use it more you get a physical boost in performance there are actually a a few big problems with that idea Mm. for one and i think this is one of the the most striking findings which is very very consistent and well established at this point there is no dose response effect of creatine supplementation Mm. of uh, caffeine supplementation so if you take more caffeine you do not get more benefits in fact a meta-analysis from last month or last week even found that there was no dose response effect of caffeine supplementation up to six milligram per kilogram, which is like six Red Bulls for <laughs> another, the average individual. Yeah. And after that, the benefits were actually lower. So that very hmm. strongly indicates not only is there no dose response effect, at some point, presumably the side effects like anxiety, shaky, twitchiness, uh, maybe digestive symptoms actually become worse than the potential um, ergogenic effects. And as far as the the ergogenic effect, what would the effect be if it doesn't have a dose response effect? That's very mysterious. Because normally, like you're you're into medicine, right? Like, do you know any drug that does not have different effects when you alter the dosage? Yeah, not many, right? No, like it's very rare and i think that is because with caffeine the main benefit is motivational it's simply being more aroused and there is a limit to how aroused you know you you're still is good for you like you, if you're like
0: bouncing off the walls it don't really <laughs> help compared to just being like in the zone you know if you're not putting your gym buddies in chokeholds and screaming yeah like, wait <laughs> You always have to follow it up with David. <laughs> you,
1: you always have to say like baby." But yeah, it's. Um, I think it's mostly psychological, and there's also research showing that uh, untrained individuals benefit more than trained individuals, which is probably also largely motivational. Like trained individuals are most likely more motivated than untrained individuals because, well, they are training, and untrained individuals there's a reason they're not training. And there's also research showing it works better in the morning. Now, that might be an actual physical effect because the primary mechanism of action of caffeine is um, the adenosine receptors basically combating sleepiness. Uh, Caffeine essentially directly undoes the effect of of sleepiness. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in the morning, that effect is is still more pronounced and there are also negative biorhythm effects like your body is not primed yet for performance early in the morning unless you habitually train in the morning every time even then it's a little contentious. So those motivation and um, uh, and, and undoing the negative circadian rhythm effects of training at a time you're unaccustomed to are probably the the two primary actual mechanisms of action. Not so much original research in like the 70s and 80s thought about it was like glycogen sparing and improved fat oxidation. That all seems pretty trivial uh, at this point. So it is mostly just a kick up the butt. And there is, in fact, a lot of very striking research about the placebo effects of caffeine. For example, there's research showing that one of my favorite studies, falsely believing you're on caffeine, so people that have were given a capsule, which is actually a placebo, but were told this is caffeine, get a bigger boost in performance than people that get actual caffeine, but were told it's it's inert, it's the placebo. So that basically shows that the placebo effect can be larger than the actual physical effect of the caffeine. In fact, probably most research, I would say, aligns with that, that the placebo effect is larger. And funny enough, this is really, really ironic. The placebo effect does have a dose response effect. So even though (laughs) there is no physical dose (laughs) response effect of the caffeine, when people believe they were consuming more caffeine, they do, in some research at least, get a bigger boost in performance which is very crazy right it's um but placebo effects in general are super crazy so
0: (laughs) we should have included placebo as uh the number one supplement we're talking about today
1: (laughs) that's actually a good topic because um i think i think there is research showing that if you um because that's sort of a a semi-violent concern it seems like Mm. it seems like it shouldn't be an argument but it, it is logical like if you tell people that their supplement was a placebo, aren't you reducing their gains? But there is actually research that placebo effects still work oh, nice. when you know it's a placebo.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. That's a question I've yeah. had for a while. Because sometimes I'll be like taking something, I'm like, I'm legit taking this supplement as a placebo.
1: <laughs> yeah, and just because- and I'm like, wait a second, does that neutralize so <laughs> Yeah, it still it's works. It's too late. <laughs> yeah.
0: Subconscious, like you're not tricking me. This is the magic, the magic yeah. stuff. <laughs> oh man, that's great. Yeah, I I think that, yeah, that's one of the interesting things about supplements that I think caffeine is a good example of where the benefits are actually somewhat indirect to, you know, hardcore biological, you know, like ergogenic aid. And I think that's one of the values of caffeine is to, you know, help you out on on a tough day or on a day where you didn't get as much sleep or particularly on at times when you're just not feeling motivated for for example like for me when i was in contest prep or whenever i'm cutting i will bring in caffeine and i will deliberately avoid it at other times so i'm relatively caffeine naive what are your thoughts on a sort of caffeine cycling approach like that i
1: think it's very good the research on addiction on caffeine is very very mixed um because there was a recent meta-analysis that argued it's all a myth look you can just keep taking it you read the benefits you keep the benefits to me that is kind of the research that strikes me as just flying so hard in the face of common experience that mm-hmm. it's it's hard to reconcile even reconcile that like is there anyone who really thinks you don't develop a tolerance to caffeine mm-hmm. you know you have people i remember one, one time i was with friends and we were hanging out in, the, in this uh, in this house and some people we like okay let's go to bed and one of my friends was like, okay, yeah, yeah I think I'm done too. So um, he got up and he came back and he had this huge monster can of energy. <laughs> and he sat down and we like looked at him like, "Bruh," And he like downed the whole can. And we're like, we just discussed we're going to bed. And we're, I'm sorry, but we're actually going to bed. And he's like, yeah, me too. Like you're just downed the whole can of monster. He's like, yeah, it doesn't do anything anymore for me. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point you know your tolerance. <laughs> so this this yeah. the idea that there is no tolerance to caffeine is is. I mean, in terms of purely agrogenic effect, uh, maybe, maybe there is some truth to it because so much of the effect is psychological anyway, that you sort of maintain that benefit. But I do find it somewhat hard to believe. And if you if you separate the studies where they use caffeine chronically over time within subjects, those studies do tend to find tolerance. But if you look at the studies where they just give a certain dose of individuals and they correlate that based on how much they were habitually consuming, then there is still an effect in most of the studies, not all of them, but in most. Now, in the last meta-analysis, what they did is they corrected for the daily habitual consumption level. And they said, look, even when someone's already consuming 300 milligram caffeine per day, they still get an effect from 300 milligram caffeine. And that's like, well, for one, if you're used to consuming free coffees spread across the day with meals, that doesn't mean you're not going to respond anymore to free Red Bulls right now at one shot, right? That that in itself is not that surprising. And that's basically what the meta-analysis measures. So I think mean, that's the main thing. And then the second thing is, A lot of research in psychology I noticed from my studies at behavioral psychology, the original caffeine research, which predates exercise science caffeine research by decades, had great difficulty separating the effects of the acute performance enhancing, mental performance enhancing in the case of psychology, the performance enhancing effects of caffeine from the anti-withdrawal effects. So it's very tricky because caffeine, I Mm -hmm. think, is literally the most consumed beverage in the world. I'm not even sure if water is more consumed probably water is number one but i think coffee <laughs> is, is in terms of beverages i think the number one <clears throat> and then uh, it's tea and then milk i think coca-cola is probably yeah. up there at this point but um it, it's so ubiquitous, as, as you say that it's hard to find people that don't consume any coffee and for a lot of people it's also hard to if you, know, if you tell people, like, okay, four days, no coffee, and then the first day they have headaches, and they stand at the coffee machine at work, and it's like, well, you know, just one. So that, there's also a big compliance issue. And if you have them stop consuming caffeine for a few days, which is commonly done before these studies, and then they get a positive response on the mm-hmm. caffeine, are they actually performing better than normal? Or is the caffeine undoing the withdrawal symptoms and are they therefore performing less worse compared to the group that got the placebo and is now just in withdrawal with headaches and whatever. Now there are two studies on endurance training where they actually did this and they found no difference in the ergogenic effect between taking the caffeine um, right after habitual usage, after two days or after four days of withdrawal. So that suggests Mm. maybe, maybe it is physical But overall, the research is still pretty iffy. And I think commonly people, at least in the mental effects, most people would agree that if if you respond to a certain dosage, that's going to decrease how much subjective effect you get from that. And considering there is no physical dose response effect, it's mostly about what you feel. So if you don't get the the benefits in terms of sensation, I'd say moderate your dosage. So I'd say for most people, what you do is, is the smart way. Higher dosages should be reserved for A competitions, days when you really feel you need that extra kick of the butt and the occasional morning workout that wasn't planned. Mm. And other, other at other times, I'd say the, the rational approach is to take like 100 milligrams, which is like one cup of coffee, one Red Bull uh, or something. Actually, the form is best anhydrous. The anhydrous form is the best form, just powder or capsules. They work better than coffee mm. or um, dissolved caffeine for unknown reasons there seems to be a negative there seems to be negative interaction effects of some of the compounds in coffee uh, in any case so about 100 milligrams of whatever form of caffeine floats your boat is is or basically the minimum you need to feel an effect and then stick with that and if you notice tolerance then go off for a little bit you don't have to go off for a long time three days you'll get a big effect and even hardcore addiction is is basically cured in nine days
0: mm. yeah no that's i think helpful for people and uh I think that yeah having this kind of this cyclical approach is going to be you know logically more useful although I think a lot of people yeah, as you said everyone is oh, connected to the coffee line drip already mm. so but yeah that's interesting how like I think for a lot of people the benefit you get is yeah literally literally just bring you back to baseline if you're such a chronic caffeine user what is there an, an upper limit that people should be aware of for caffeine?
1: Um, there is research showing that, uh, especially in terms of psychological effects, at about 750 milligrams per day on average, you get complete tolerance. So then you become like my friend where you done a monster <laughs> before you go to bed. <laughs> and I think that, that you definitely want to avoid because then all you're doing is undoing withdrawal effects. So you're just completely reliant on it to function normally. Um, yeah, I mean that—that that is actually a concern for some people. Shockingly, <laughs> especially with coffee, because coffee is so—it's much more sneaky. You know, it's um, not like the Red Bull shots. Although interestingly, there also seems to be a huge placebo effect with energy drinks. The fact that you know it's an energy drink and it has some fizzle or whatever seems to have more effect than any of the other additional ingredients. Because those in the ingredients, when studied in isolation, they do nothing. And even when added to caffeine, there there doesn't seem to be an interaction effect.
0: Wow. <laughs> Mano and I are going to be coming out with a new brand of supplements called the placebo pill. Just a pill and a drink, a nice fizzy drink. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Yeah. So it's of none. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Yeah. Moving on. wanted to talk about vitamins and minerals. And I think that the, um, this is going to be like, as, as a quick preface, uh, I'm not giving any medical advice here on this show. This is, Purely from a bodybuilding perspective, but uh, yeah, I think you know one of the first things to bring up is the the main issue here is making sure that you're not deficient. Um, in a lot of these, where people think that, oh yeah, I'm going to take all these this whole this whole handful of you know specific vitamins and minerals, and they're all going to boost ABCDE functions and turn me into Superman. So yeah, if you could touch on that,
1: yeah, the, the shotgun approach seems seems rational but actually isn't because the thing with most multivitamins and many supplements that have a lot of combination stuff is that they don't include the stuff that you actually need because many of the things that people are actually likely to be deficient in if you're if your diet is remotely good are mostly minerals i would say hmm. especially for strength trainees and those are toxic in large amounts so you won't find those in large amounts in most multivitamins like magnesium iron Iron is also very um, sex-specific, so for women it's a much bigger issue, for men in fact toxicity is probably the bigger issue. So there, because of these differences, most of the stuff that you're actually likely to be deficient in is the stuff you won't find in most multivitamins, and there are also issues with which isoforms they put in, like vitamin E, you get competitive inhibition uh, and sometimes deficiency even of the isoforms that are not in the multivitamin. And um, you also get poor quality ingredients often and then they put a lot of stuff in there of the stuff that you don't actually need and it turns out that some of that stuff such as vitamin C and E actually turns out to be harmful in large amounts so mm-hmm. we now have good research showing that mega dosing vitamin C and E uh, is such a proposes such a strong anti-inflammatory effect that it also suppresses the inflammatory signal for muscle repair mm-hmm. so inflammation is a normal part of the muscle repair process inflammation, is generally has a very bad association and that's mostly deserved. But inflammation mostly just means, uh, hey, pay attention to me, to the immune system. And then the immune system comes and it starts paying attention to that area. And if you suppress that signal completely, it also suppresses muscle growth and strength development. And we see this, especially from 500 uh, milligrams, I think it is, milligrams, vitamin C, that we see actual consistent uh, effects. And 250, there's like some, some glimpers of it. And you don't need that much anyway so the the shotgun approach is is actually quite risky. And there's also research that people that take multivitamins have higher mortality rates than people that don't. And that yeah. might be due to their worse health and stuff, but at least it means it's not working out as the panacea they intended to be.
0: yeah. so yeah, are there are there any specific ones that you think people should be just you know cognizant of?
1: Yeah, actually, I think in terms of supplements, the ones I recommend the most are often uh, vitamin D and minerals Mm -hmm. like zinc, magnesium. If you don't consume dairy, it's calcium. It's very, very diet dependent. You know, if you don't consume, uh, it's more, not really a micro, but omega freeze, it's also very much like, do you consume fish? No, well, then you probably need that. Uh, For iron, it's like, do you consume shellfish or red meat? If not, well, and you're, especially if you're female, then there's a good chance you need it, especially if you're also doing endurance training alongside it and if you still have a regular menstrual cycle then your iron requirements are super super high so for those individuals it's often like yeah you you probably want some of that but it really depends on the diet and for some it depends on the form like magnesium the vast majority of magnesium forms on the market are crap the the bioavailability is a few percent and magnesium oxide poses more digestive issues and problems than it actually cures anything so i generally recommend magnesium citrate because it's it's high quality there are a few other forms that are uh, okay but magnesium citrate is very cheap um and relatively easy to find and very well established to have at least decent bioavailability
0: Mm -hmm. yeah no it's a good point that a lot of this comes down to your diet and uh the vitamin d is a good point where if anyone's living in a more northern latitude you should be thinking Mm -hmm. about vitamin d Um, yeah even
1: if you're not honestly like Probably most people that don't have a tan should at least consider it.
0: Yeah, how much would you recommend people take?
1: I think an average is like 4,000 IUs. That's what most studies find. Then you get levels that are for like two standard deviations above average in the population satisfactory, as in more than 50, what is it, nanomole per liter? I think it's the range. And you get below toxicity levels. Now, toxicity levels is like 200. So that's four times as much. And you typically need like 20,000 IUs consistently to even get there. And I myself have had 180 after a very long-term supplementation of 5,000 IUs a day. And I've seen that once more or two times more in people. So some people absorb a lot. And if you also get some sun, you can actually somewhat get there, but it's still very rare. So toxicity is, is very, very um, rare. And I think there's not pretty much a consensus among the more in-the-know people that most public health authorities have colossally underestimated vitamin D requirements. Like they still say 400 IUs is literally 10 times too little. And then they say like, well, you know, you there's very little risk of developing rick, uh, rickets. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, you know, I have somewhat higher health standards than not getting rickets, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh, when I get like bone malabsorption and stuff, it's like, at that point you, you have bigger issues So I'm I'm concerned about my gains, you know. (laughs) So uh, on that note, by the way, it's you also don't get much benefits from being over fifty, but up to fifty, there are quite some studies showing like benefits for testosterone, bone health, strength gains, muscle growth. In some research, it's not big effects and stuff, but it's also super cheap and very low risk.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then in terms of the omega threes, what should people be taking?
1: mostly fish, I would say. Um, Mm -hmm. It's actually interesting. There there was a paper on this, um, two papers. There's one in the US and one in Australia and New Zealand where they looked at 32 brands. And Australia and New Zealand are generally renowned for their high production quality standards when it comes to food. So it's not going to be better in other places. And out of the 32, one passed all their tests. Mm. It was about... Only a third, no, no, only three out of 32, even had what was on the label in the first place. And <laughs> yeah. over 80%, also including those, of, so that those three, then you're left with one, um, had toxicity and oxidized fatty acids. Hmm. And that's, that's a huge, huge problem because the whole idea of omega-3s is that they're not oxidized so that you get anti-inflammatory effects. And when they're oxidized, you're literally paying for poison hmm. so there, and there is research showing as well that in especially in overweight individuals because they have high levels of systemic inflammation anyway so the oxidation risk increases even more when they consume them that they actually get worse health outcomes and they get more inflammation and they get um a cardiovascular side effects so you the form for omega free supplements is super super important it's so important that if you're not consuming fish, there's like uh, a handful, I think six different brands that I've seen with my own eyes, independent lab work, that what they claim is on the label is on the label and the fatty acids are not oxidized. And in almost all cases, they are natural triglycerides. So all of that, if you you see on the label, high concentration, uh, super, super concentration, um you know uh, better form or whatever th- stay away those are those all mean process to crap you want the natural form you want it to be as close to fish as possible so if you actually get fish oil like literal yeah. salmon oil that's generally good if it's not gone rancid yet so if it's stored well and stuff and, and heavy metal heavy metal poisoning and stuff is not really a concern anymore that's one of the few things where health authorities have actually doubled down on that so I wouldn't worry about that. It's what all the supplement companies flaunt with, you know, like no heavy metal poisoning. It's like, yeah, no heavy metal poisoning. Also no omega freeze, but no heavy metals. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, the form super important. And the brands I've seen are uh, out of memory, Rositas, Gero. Um, which ones were good? Gero was probably, oh yeah, Athletic Greens. And... There are a few more, I don't know. One Creole oil, specific brands. But yeah, it's like a few brands. Athletic Greens is generally a good brand. Gero is good. Rositas is good, but Rositas has like uh, a certain, certain liver oil with also a lot of vitamin A and stuff. So you can't take too much without getting <laughs> vitamin A toxicity, but um, they are. They seem to be legit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And <clears throat> I just take fish oil myself as it's, it's easier. And in, yeah, like this was something interesting where looking at the shelves, I found that, yeah, the labels on these supplements was very confusing. Let's say someone is, yeah, looking for official supplement or something uh, to cover their omega-3s. What do they actually look for on the label? You know, in terms, they will mention like EPA, DHA.
1: Yeah, the EPA and DHA contents are what matter most. You want both. Research is a bit equivocal about which forms is better, but I'd say you just want both. And you want, like, for, for most intents and purposes, two grams per day of actual EPA plus DHA. So not just the fish oil, not just the total fat, but the actual EPA plus DHA, those combined. At two grams, you're pretty much maxed out. And then I think the World Health Organization also says, like, at that point, you've, even for people with cardiovascular risk, you're sort of maxed out. But there is a recent study or even a few where they found that megadosing does have more benefits. And there was at least one study which found up to five or even eight grams, there was a slight improvement in recovery from training, uh, but it, it becomes, you definitely get major uh, diminishing returns after two grams. And after I'd say the minimum is like half a gram. And then you get sort of your, your most basis covered like the, the or like the, the basics, the essentials. And then at two grams, you have most basis covered in terms of near maximal effects. And then it's questionable if you get more going up to free. Some people I go up to free. It can compensate for like slightly worse diet quality and health to, to some degree. Then the other thing you want to look at the label is that it's, if unless it's one of the, the reputed brands, that it's a natural triglyceride oil. Those are often much better because it basically means it's the actual oil, maybe filtered and stuff, but it's not processed. Normally the what they do is the, uh, re-esterified oil which basically means they, they pull it all apart they get the compounds they want and they sort of put those back together and then it, it often destroys the um oils and it oxidizes them so those the risk is much much higher
0: mm-hmm. cool yeah that <clears throat> coincides with my understanding and yeah just to re-emphasize for people that you know we're talking about fish oils here you can you can get this from eating fatty fish Uh, as well
1: yeah it's even better then you don't have any of the risks and then like 100 grams of fatty fish per day on average uh, is enough i mean that's it it depends on how you look at it for some people that's like oh i love fish so that's easy and other people are like "Uh, that's you know i need to eat salmon every single day that's really hard one nice thing is that you don't have to eat it every day you can have like 700 grams that's a lot but you can have like 700 grams on sunday every week and then you're also covered
0: Mm yeah well that's good to know okay moving on to melatonin i think this is another really interesting one from the perspective Mm -hmm. of bodybuilding which we'll get into so basically melatonin helps us regulate our sleep cycle Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's it's a very if you have circadian rhythm disturbances or disorders like me i have done 24 so my natural cycle isn't 24 hours like for most people it's not 24 hours it's like 24 and a half or uh, something but it, it's it's pretty close to 24 and for me it's more like 26 or 26 and a half or something so I don't get tired at night mm. which is great for all-nighters and needing a driver <laughs> uh, at night but it, it's really bad for uh, living so I need very meticulous circadian rhythm control and even then I still benefit from melatonin supplementation and What you normally only see in jet-lagged individuals, I also benefit from five milligrams. Normally the cap is like three. Because just like with the creatine, there is a limit to, depending on how much your body naturally produces, you can add some extra, but at some point you you maximize the effect that you, you can get. For most people, that's like at three milligrams, if at all. Like if you don't have sleep problems, you don't need melatonin. And melatonin also mostly helps you fall asleep. So many people think it's like, um, it, it improves sleep quality so you don't need to sleep as much no sorry it doesn't work uh, it's helped you stay asleep barely like in some research maybe a few hours but very little effect so it's mostly just if you have trouble falling asleep and it's not due to stress or not having a nighttime routine it's really because your body's not producing the melatonin it needs so general sleep optimization advice of you know like avoiding bright light exposure especially blue lights In the later part of the day, in the last few hours before bedtime, not having a kind of monster before you go to bed, (laughs) that uh, all applies. Oh, by the way, speaking of which, the intersection of sleep and caffeine, the the magnitudes of caffeine's negative effects on sleep quality are generally really underappreciated. There is research showing that a single double espresso consumed in the morning still impairs sleep quality that night, which is... Crazy subjectively, because it means that the objective negative physical effects persist far beyond the subjective effects. And that's in part due to um, receptor downregulation of the effect that you get subjectively. And probably it's because that is the strongest effect caffeine has, wakefulness, promoting wakefulness. So even you sort of have ultra wakefulness when you feel extra aroused from caffeine. But just preventing you from sleeping optimally, you only need like a tiny bit of caffeine to to do that. And then yeah, there's melatonin. Yeah, I guess it somewhat counteracts the effect of caffeine in this way, but not directly. There are different effects.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. You know, circling back to caffeine, but this is kind of a yeah, like a trigger for me where yeah, like people forget that caffeine has a really long half life of like five hours. So, what you take in the morning, there's still going to be some of that floating around at night and it will impact your sleep. And especially when you get to these higher doses.
1: Yeah. And there, I mean, the half life is, is on average like five hours, but there are individuals, and we, we know from genetic research that, that vary a lot in how much they, they genetically uh, vary in their speed of absorption of the caffeine. And there are people in who the half life is, I think the highest recorded I've seen is nine and a half hours. So if mm-hmm. you take a lot of caffeine in the morning, you're one of those individuals. Yeah, for sure. It's going to impact your sleep.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but anyways, coming back to melatonin. Yeah. The, the, the value of melatonin here <clears throat> to emphasize for people is that you're regulating your sleep cycle. So you're not using it to actually make you sleep. So this isn't something that you should be taking every day, you know, year round all mm-hmm. the time. Like um, you should probably be trying to fix your, um, your <clears throat> sleep quality using, um, you know, sleep hygiene and all that other stuff, but it can be helpful for people in terms of, you know, if you jet lag, or if you're coming off of a, especially, you know, for myself, I use it quite a bit because I do a lot of shift work, like late night work. So it can help me, you know, regulate my time, my clock. And the other thing is that I think that people end up taking too much. Um, yeah. Like, what would you say people should start with if they are just taking,
1: you, you can take three milligrams and then
0: just get max effect it depends a bit on the
1: scenario like if you're jet lagged or something if you just had night shift work i can i think you can do three or even five just get for the full effect but if you're just taking it and especially if you notice any adverse effects which is rare and normally it's very safe there's no uh, tolerance or addiction or any of that but then it's, it's i mean in general why put more in your body than you need you know so i'd, I'd err on the side of maybe two, and then maybe building off the dosage so that you can even get off it. Because most people shouldn't need it in the first place, right? Like you say, it's for special occasions mostly. Uh, or I think most, most commonly for the average individual, if they want to go to bed earlier than normally. So if you're now mm-hmm. consistently going to bed at nighttime, mm-hmm. um, like midnight, and you want to reset that and go to bed at 10, you may not be sleepy at the 10. So that's where melatonin can be a godsend uh, to make you fall asleep earlier and then once you have your rhythm set and like you say you've optimized your sleep hygiene at that point you should be able to get off it and some people like me um, may need it continuously but for most people yeah you should just be able to come off it completely
0: yeah exactly yeah, i think that's another big point that people you know uh, reason to use it on a semi-regular basis you know kind of a once a week thing or rather than a once a day thing but you know say if you've been partying with meno all weekend and uh you're you've been up late and you want to get up monday morning for work then it could help you get get you to sleep a bit earlier so that was great moving on i wanted to i want to touch on a couple of uh, pre-workout supplements mm-hmm. um what are your thoughts on l-citrulline
1: l-citrulline is is very promising um but i think we have only one study that actually measured long-term muscle growth or, yeah only one and it's found no effect now the dosage wasn't very high so you could argue they need more and the other thing is the effect on work capacity and especially lower rep strength training is not major it's really more for endurance strength endurance those kind of things mm. there can be some effect and in the meta analytic research you do see it on average you know adds a rep or two here and there to your workouts in the gym but does that really have an effect? Now, for one, the effect may not be large enough to be meaningful. Secondly, it's sort of reverse katsu, like blood flow restriction training works because it increases your metabolic stress. And citrulline basically acts as a buffer against metabolic stress. So is that actually beneficial? Mm. Right? Your because neuromuscular fatigue in form of metabolic stress like peripheral neuromuscular fatigue lowers the recruitment threshold of the higher threshold motor units. So it basically increases muscle activity to compensate for the presence of the fatigue. And that's why you can get good results with lightweights if you just do enough of them and go to failure. Or if blood flow restriction, you can use really lightweights and then uh, still get maximal recruitment um, or full recruitment and uh, sufficient levels of muscle activity to, to reach maximum muscle growth. With with the citrulline and beta alanine is kind of the same thing. mm mm-hmm it's really questionable if if that is even a positive effect to begin with. And then the research itself is still not super clear. Recently, I think two weeks ago or something, I posted about a study which showed that caffeine was actually more ergogenic than caffeine plus a whole bunch of pre-workout stuff, including citrulline, at a decent dosage. So that's you know, another win for pure anhydrous caffeine, but also makes you wonder if you're consuming these cocktails or pre workouts, how much negative synergy is there? Because there's always this idea, you know, mm-hmm. uh, well, this is potentially good, this is potentially good, this is potentially good, let's throw it all together and you get ultra good, <laughs> you know? But maybe there's negative synergy. And we know that even in some things like coffee, there is negative synergy between the caffeine and some of the co- substances in the coffee itself. And then we know that there's also some, uh, a few studies showing negative synergy between caffeine and creatine. So there are multiple of these cases where there can actually be negative interaction effects. And it's not just a matter of, uh, again, just consuming more of everything. It's not necessarily the best approach.
0: that's so funny yeah i know that that would be an interesting research you know project to look at the the interaction between bodybuilding supplements because like people yeah the the list of these supplements are crazy you know like it's just like 20 different Mm. things and reminds of you know when you have patients who have polypharmacy like so many drugs and it's just like i remember once one of my classmates being like what if you just took them all off it like everything it's just like oh man (laughs) scary
1: yeah this with uh, polypharmacy and um the, like they are, they are much more strict in what they allow in terms of combining interaction effects yeah. with supplements it's like you know what do no you want holds barred yeah exactly All of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah no that's great okay um i also want to bring up uh, ashwagandha i mean this has been getting mm-hmm. quite a bit of attention recently
1: yeah, the, the main thing with Ashwagandha is it's super promising if you look at the individual studies. And then if you look at these studies positive and negative, and you separate them by country of origin. Then you suddenly see like positive research, basically exclusively India. Hmm. And then negative <laughs> research everywhere else. And it's like hmm, it's um, it's there. What is it? A- A- What's the, the medicine... Tradition, medicine, tradition. Um, I I don't know how to pronounce it, Ayuvin, Ayuvan, whatever. Standard Indian sort of um folk medicine uh, tradition. It's 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 big there. And there have been multiple cases of research from India frauding stuff from India before. And of course. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, all of these researchers are in on these things and whatever, but it it is certainly something to to pay attention to. And I'd wait until the miraculous effects we see on like improved muscle growth and the like, uh, those are really shady studies. Right now we see that it can have an anxiolytic effect. So it may reduce anxiety. It may buffer against general stress responsiveness as an adaptogen. But in terms of like what we know concretely, what I'd say with decent scientific evidence we know that does and especially where we also see anecdotally like there is something there not much like i didn't notice anything from taking it of course the effects are often too small to notice anything which is why a lot of people become disillusioned with supplements in general but yeah i'd uh, i'd say this is one of the um, same with uh what is it betaine there you also mm. see like basically all the positive research is industry sponsored and it's like a literal 100% split like all the positive is industry sponsors sponsored and all the negative is-, is independent and there's like there's no overlap and then you really wonder like okay you know that's with such a clear split i'm, I'm become really skeptical mm-hmm.
0: yeah <clears throat> yeah no it'll be that's funny about the country independence that you mentioned <laughs> How about uh, HMB? It's another one I get commonly asked about.
1: Oh yeah, HMB is like in general we take protein, and then researchers have thought like in, instead of the general, like we want everything in the protein. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Supplement manufacturers have come up with increasingly new ways to extract further and further and, <laughs> further, and further and further down, because they were like okay, no, this is better than protein. This is just the essential proteins, Mm -hmm. just the essential amino acids. And they're like, don't you also want the non-essential ones? They also increase protein synthesis. And it's like, no, 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 These are the essential ones. Look, essential is better than non-essential. can't you hear? And then it's like, (laughs) even better than just the essential ones. What if we ditch all the others and we just sell you the BCAs and we sell them for more than getting the BCAs plus all the others together because you're just getting the BCAs, right? And then wow. what if we don't just sell you the BCAs? <laughs> we're just selling you leucine for even more than the price of the BCAs together, right? So now not only do you not get all the other proteins, you don't even get the other BCAs anymore. And now what if we don't sell you the leucine? Instead, we just give you leucine extract and then we have HMB. <laughs> and then you bribe some researchers to, uh, to publish a study saying it, it induces miraculous growth. One of the few studies where we, there are a lot of, like, almost all the um, top researchers, I would say, in, in exercise science have signed that, the letter myself included, saying we don't believe this study by uh, Jacob Wilson at all, mm. uh, which showed that HMB literally worked better than steroids. Like, the gains in that study were larger than you'd see in research on androgenic anabolic steroids of, like, mm. 600 milligram per week, Jeez. which is, like, six, six-fold super anabolic, <laughs> super physiologic. So yeah other than that it's, it's mostly super disappointing and there's no it, it doesn't make sense like the, the whole idea is like you're you're just reducing stuff you know you have the effects of protein and then you're just getting less of the effect of protein and you see this in research as well like essential amino acids don't stimulate protein as much as also including the non-essential amino acids mm-hmm. bcas don't even stimulate muscle protein synthesis at all when there's no substrate of the other amino acids and so the the more you break it down even we see some mixes like casein and whey together stimulate more protein balance than just whey typically especially when you measure it more than six hours because that's another thing researchers love to bias the study duration so they can see like whey gives a big spike in Mm. mps but then after six hours you see casein actually wins out but Mm. casein sucks casein is really hard to sell Uh, it's really sticky super thick Uh, like unflavored casein it's like yeah really hard to, to to even consume like it's physically hard to consume it uh so yeah that's not there's not much of a market there so yeah i'm, I'm really not a fan of uh anything if it's protein it's just you get the whole thing
0: exactly and you yeah. get that in all foods yeah i'm in agreement where yeah i think basically this was kind of the the other list of um supplements to strike out you know like anything anything where you're taking a derivative of protein or like one component of it like why not just take the whole protein um so yeah that covers you know eaa's bcaa's and uh, a whole list of basic basically any amino acid people find a way to market it <laughs> yeah or something and anyways so there goes our uh, supplement sponsorships out the window as you guys can tell this is a non-sponsored video (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah this has been great this has been a great chat and i think this will dispel a lot of myths about supplements Mm -hmm. out there for people what's new with you these days meno what's happening with with yourself from say like a training and bodybuilding perspective
1: Uh, not much i uh got a big back injury some time ago oh and i get the mri scan in a few days, the result.
0: Oh, that should bad! Should have gone day. that much
1: earlier. Yeah, it's bad. I, I thought it was a uh, torn quadratus lumborum, but based on the recovery time, I'm now starting to think it's uh, a fracture. Actually. Ooh. So. You should send I me think the images. <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, Mark. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Probably trust you more than the, uh, <laughs> the the local docs here. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And then, anything new cooking in terms of research?
1: Uh, not, not so much. Uh, I've posted about there were some interesting new studies recently, but in terms of my actual publications, mm. there's the uh, the fasting intermittent fasting study which is still on hold, and I'm just working a lot on um, my PT course at the moment, and probably by the time this up, I hope to have a guide ready for beginner female trainees. So there's, there's very little, I think material that's like super succinct, succinct, where you can just tell people, okay, this is in one article, like what you need to know to get started, you know, for like new year's crowd or women that want to start lifting weights, a lot of stuff for men, but not so much for women. So I wrote a guide, which like really the essentials, not going into macro tracking and all the stuff, but just the real essentials of living a healthy diet and just a very basic standard uh, strength training program.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah that's that that will really benefit the community i think because as you said there's a lot of you know male directed material out there and mm-hmm. for a lot of females they see this so they see like some massive bodybuilder flexing on a, a an article and, and they're just like well this isn't for me and then they just go to some you know bro science or yeah girl bro exactly. science <laughs> so anyways yeah it was great to catch up Mano. know uh, pleasure. where can people find
1: thought. you uh probably best way If you're not following me yet, is to if you go to my website and then you'll see my newsletter subscription box. You get a free tour of my most popular contents, a lot of um, also the new stuff I publish and post, um, and also the stuff that just people like the most. So that's probably best way to get familiar with my
0: contents. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll link that in the in the description below. And for any aspiring PTs or people who just want to up their knowledge, Meno has a personal training course which is top notch. Would recommend. So thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.